Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Fulta. I'm the podcast host. And finally, very happy to say that we're back after a brief hiatus. And I appreciate everyone staying with us. And I promise a very compelling episode today. So I'm sitting here with Dr. Ilaria Kapua. Um, she is the director of the One Health Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. And we're here to sp- speak on two different topics. First topic is really the pushback against scientists and the way in which scientists have come under fire simply for doing the right thing. The second part of the podcast will be about the hot topic of the coronavirus. And I neglected to mention that Dr. Kapua is a veterinarian and a virologist who has extensive research in animal viruses, especially avian influenza. And so she's with us here today. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a real <laughs> pleasure to be here. So I, I, you're someone who um, I've always valued every minute we've had an opportunity to spend together and um, we have some common themes in what has happened to us and it, it, I get you know a little emotional just sitting here with you because I understand what's happened to your story and I, I love that we're able to talk about it. Give me an idea about your work in avian influenza and just in general you know the work that you did prior to um, everything that happened uh, in the media. So As a little girl, I just wanted to be a scientist. (laughs) This is where I start. I had no doubt I was going to be a scientist. And um, unfortunately, I came from a family of lawyers, and everybody thought I was crazy. And so um, the way that I got to being a scientist was actually going to vet school, because I convinced my parents that I really wanted to be a veterinarian, which of course was not true. And this allowed me to do two things. First of all, to go and study in a city which wasn't my hometown, which I desperately wanted to do. And secondly, to do science. And so I rushed through vet school, came out with top marks, and um, then had to go back to my parents and say that, oops, I was not going to open a practice, but I wanted to do science. And then they really thought I was crazy when I told them that I wanted to be a scientist in the public service and I wanted to be a public servant. Um, But, you know, uh, determined Italian women uh, try hard and succeed at times. And so I actually managed to become a scientist. I became a virologist. I trained further in virology and I worked for many, many years in the public health veterinary laboratories, which are um, in Italy, they are called Istituti Zooprofilattici. I worked actually in three of them. And um, uh, around uh, the late 90s, I moved to the institute in which uh, I left maybe the biggest part of my heart, which is 
the Istituto Zooprofilatico delle Venezie in Padova. I started off with a laboratory of five people, and when I left, I had a group of 70. <laughs> and how did we do this? We did this because we anticipated what was going to happen. Italy was affected by a um, very severe epidemic of bird flu in 99-2000, and we were just on the top of that. This was not an avian flu which was transmissible to people. It was just a disease of birds, a very severe disease of birds. And basically, we capitalized on that experience as a team. It was uh, an epidemic which killed 17 million birds, so like big, big problems, big problems for the economy for a country like Italy. And when bird flu H5N1, so the zoonotic virus which came from Asia in the mid-2000s came around, we were just on the ball. And so we worked extensively with this virus uh, internationally. We had um, very, very significant international connections. And we were receiving these H5N1 isolates from the whole world. And uh, that is how we uh, became one of the European leaders uh, in the field and how we got um, international acknowledgement. But this role of leadership, I pushed it a bit further. And you know what I did, Ken, don't you? <laughs> well, let's go backwards just a touch. You know, at this point, you're really doing well. I think you were recognized by Scientific American as one of the top 50 scientists in the world, or most impactful scientists. Uh, the Economist um, had glowing things to say about you and placed you as, you know, I mean, you were on the top of the game here. Mm -hmm. um, and in other parts that really revolutionized what you did and maybe led to some downstream events was you were very active in maybe democratizing the science and especially sequence information. Yes. And sharing that information, yes. open access, all that stuff. So tell me a little bit about that. Yes. So this is, this is the mess I put myself into. But I put myself into this mess because I really believe in the value of public health. And I believe that civil servants should really do their best to ensure public health when there are big problems like an emerging pandemic. And so, as I was saying, we were receiving isolates from all over the world, and my lab received the first ever African isolate of the so-called deadly, and I'm putting this in inverted commas, H5N1 influenza virus. It was an, a virus uh, from Nigeria. We are talking about two th 2006. Um, I receive a phone call from uh, a colleague at the World Health Organization that asks me to deposit that sequence in a password-protected database, which, to which only 15 labs had access. And because I believe in public health and I believe in the importance of our role and I understand the importance of working together, what I did was I said, no, thank you. I will put this sequence that the whole world is craving for into an open access database. And I deposited the sequence in GenBank. And 
I also, at that point, set a precedent uh, for other scientists, and I invited other scientists to do the same. Uh, my point was that if we were all fighting for uh, public health and to protect us from a potentially pandemic virus, we have to work together. What's the point of not having all the sequences in one place? We need to develop diagnostics. We need to develop vaccines fast. And so we need to share. What is more important, another publication by Laria Cava or having all the stuff in the same place so that we can all look at it together? And of course, now it seems obvious, but it wasn't so obvious in those days. No, that's what I wanted to touch on, maybe for the, for the listeners that don't know and understand the culture, was really if you had something that was a unique resource, this was your way to write grants, hire scientists, and something you could work on and carve out your little niche. And we always look for those. But at the same time, being able to make something universally available has tremendous value to the community, to public health, but also to you as your how you're perceived as a scientific citizen. And so there are a lot of good reasons to make these things public, very, very much so. But in 2006, maybe not as much. And, and GenBank is where you put the sequence information so that anyone can find it. And, and so that, that's really where we were at the time. But so how does doing something that is being done for the, in the interest of public health, maybe breaking a little convention, thinking outside of your own lab, thinking about the bigger picture, how does this turn backwards on you? Well, it turns backwards on you because um, you go in the spotlight and people start uh, looking at what you do with more attention. Uh, disruptive innovators are never very well accepted because if you are, it's, it's in the word disruptive. Nobody wants to be disrupted by somebody else, right? And actually what happened to me in those days, and I was totally unaware of, was that my phone was tapped. And so when I was advocating for data sharing in those years, and I was telling my colleagues uh, all over the world, of course I will send you the virus, because that is what I was doing. Uh, I was uh, trying to lay a new, um, a new way to work together. And so all the viruses of the H7 epidemic, the early one in early 2000 in Italy, were, I shared them with a the whole scientific community. I think that those are among the viruses that have been most studied. And similarly with the H5N1, when we had um, other centers that were asking us, can we have that virus because we need to do a challenge experiment, we need to do a comparison, we were the first ones to make it available. And because my phone was tapped and I was speaking with some of my collaborators, um, but also with other scientists abroad, and I was saying, yes, of course, I'll send you the virus. I'll just, you know, I, 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 need, just, I need to go and get it downstairs and I'll send you. And of course, this was repeated many, many times because we were in the middle of a, just like now with the coronavirus, I mean, I was one of the world experts. We were in the middle of the eye of a hurricane and, you know, there's lots of things that you mm -hmm. say on the phone. And whatever you say on the phone can be cut and pasted into actually a completely different meaning. So who was tapping your phone? Well, 
there was some there was an investigation um, because of all this noise around H5N1, and uh, actually the investigation had started in the U.S. and then for some reason it was like it was made available to the Italian investigators. And uh, I, I think that my phone was tapped because actually somebody else's phone was tapped and I was talking with this other person, mm, if you see okay, what I yeah, mean, yeah. right? So, so it wasn't my phone, it was somebody else's. Sure. But then my phone started getting into that loop of being tapped and my phone was tapped for about three years. And the information that they gathered on this, obviously you didn't know that they were gathering this information about you. And so where did it end up that, that it really came to your attention? Well, actually, it ended up uh, in a drawer, in a, file, in a dossier, which was sitting in a drawer. And it sat there from about 2008 to 2014. So in the meantime, uh, a little bit because I am a person who likes new challenges um, and for a series of other reasons, I was ready for a change. I, I was, a change just fell into my lap. The Italian prime minister of the time, uh, Mr. Mario Monti, asked me to run uh, as an elected official in the Italian parliament. Mario Monti is a, a person uh, of great respect and knowledge. He has been twice European commissioner and his motivation was to get some scientists in parliament. And so I really felt that, you know, I, I you, can al- you can always, you know, pull out of these things, but then you can't complain if things go wrong. And so I said, yes, Italy needs a bit more science in its decisional environment. And okay, I'll do it. And this was 2013. And not even a year after I was elected, this dossier was pulled out of a drawer and uh, was leaked to the press. And so shortly thereafter, this article comes out in the Italian weekly magazine, news magazine called Il, Il Espresso. Is Il Espresso? I pardon my pardon my Italian. <laughs> L'Espresso. And this is a very popular magazine, right? This is everybody sees this. And on the cover, there's somebody in a hazmat suit, a yellow cover, hazmat suit. Um, everything looks biological. Horrible. Biological danger. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. Danger. And um, and um, when you open inside and read the story, um, was did you know that this was coming out before it happened, or did, were you completely blindsided by this? I got a phone call by the journalist two days before the article, the magazine was published. And I didn't know anything about it. I really didn't know anything. And for anyone who wants to hear the whole story there's um there's actually a documentary about it which i will give you the link to yes, and there is also a, an article in the journal of virology um, which you can link because this, the the story is well laid out in there but anyway uh yes i discover from a journalist that i am being accused of being uh about um, 12 years before right um an international virus trafficker so I was accused of a series of horrendous crimes, one of which punishable 
with life imprisonment. And, um, and, and I just didn't know. I, I learned about this without seeing the article two days before, and then the article was published, and I became, uh, from being like, oh, the Italian scientist who did really good things in her life, and she's a woman, and look how good she is, and now she's trying to help the country. In one second, I became the horrible woman who wants to make money on public health and who sells viruses to private companies and actually has her own company where money from these um, from these businesses are going. Yeah, yeah. So you were you were actually accused of providing this to big pharma so that they could create the vaccines to uh, solve the problem that you were creating and put money in your pocket. You know, the whole conspiracy, big shill, big pharma gambit that we hear over and over again. And and also the the website on this is fantastic from that magazine where you can read the original story and translate it to English. It translates pretty well, um, even though it's in Italian. You sit and read that this. I sit and read it, and I can't imagine what it would be like to be you. Um, I mean, I kind of can, you but, can't. but 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 the, you can't. the so you just tell me a you know so here you, you're like you say you're a leading scientist asked to serve the public in Parliament. You know, total diversion from your original mission in some ways, but in a way getting a better venue to do more good for the public. And what was the fallout from this? I mean, what happened to you personally and professionally, you know, the people you worked with, um, you know, folks, you know, who you had previously worked with in your labs? I mean, what, what happened? Well, I mean, the first, you, when you were saying, you can, I can just imagine when you were reading through that, and I think that you can't imagine because it's actually every, so the article was published online, I think, at midnight. And so I stayed up until midnight to see what was going to be written on those papers. I was by myself in my house in Rome, and every line was uh, like a, a punch in the stomach. Every line, and um, I, I threw up. I, I, I mean, it, it, it's just like I don't know, be, being you know, punched and punched and punched and beaten up, really beaten up, but. You know, physically being beaten up—that's how that—that that is how I felt, and I can't even you know remember. I, of course, you get uh, you know everybody wants to phone you, everybody wants to know your story. Um, you don't even know the story because all you know is what is published in that magazine, so you don't even know you know what these people are that's talking right. about. So it's really terrible. What I can say is that I was I was a lame duck. Um, for a long time, uh, we used to walk. I, I have we have a, a ten uh, now she's fifteen, but we had a, a ten year old girl. We used to walk her to school, and the parents of the other school children used to change sidewalk. Um, with reference to my group, uh, my deputy left and is now working in Vienna, Austria. Um, a whole load of other collaborators have left and now are in many places around the world. But to my great joy, my laboratory in 2018, notwithstanding the credibility shake it had had to undergo, it won the tender 
to become the European reference laboratory for avian influenza. And so this, this is, you know, was actually my, very rewarding for me. But let me tell you how the story ended up, because how it ended up was that I um, resigned as a Actually, I uh, accepted a position here at UF um, because I was told that it was just going to, you know, it, it, it would take forever for the whole story to go through the system because it, 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 the Italian system is very slow. And so I um, accepted the position here and I moved here and three weeks later I got here I was cleared because there was no case to answer and so yeah that's how it finished I was completely cleared because there was no case to answer and so I was left for about three years uh, really burning inside in, in, in total despair um, with the, my credibility ripped from me. They ripped my skin. They ripped my, my um, you know, even some of my students were harassed and my colleagues. And so they really destroyed uh, or I would say profoundly changed the life of so many individuals who are doing good things. And it's actually a big loss for Italy as a country and for Padova as a city, because now, of course, the lab is doing well, but it's not what it was before. Um, and so, yeah, so you see, you do something um, which is just the right thing to do. Um, you push it and you fight it because, of course, I fought for data sharing. I, I stood up in front of a lot of people who didn't want to share their data and actually made a point about this for most of my career. And, and then something like that can be just transformed into like, a like another movie, another film. That was not my story. And so... This is what fake news can do to you. And this is what fake news can do to science. And that is why uh, I have a mission B in life, which is to work as hard as I can for two things. The first one is, particularly in Italy, uh, advocate for a justice system that understands science better. And the second thing is that these cases in which scientists and institutions are persecuted by the press and are, um, you know, covered with mud uh, is bad for everyone because the last thing that we can afford is, is as, as institutions is, and uh, as scientists is to lose our credibility. And... Things like this make us lose our credibility as scientists, as institutions. And so lay people, they are afraid of us and they don't trust us. And this is one of the reasons that one of the things that my center is doing here at UF is developing a program to 
um, make lay people understand that scientists are passionate about their work, they're determined, they love their work, they're inspired by their work, and they're not necessarily cuckoos or criminals or people who, you know, just want to be in the lab the whole day. They are people like everybody else, and they just have this special passion for science. It's, um, yeah, I appreciate this a lot. Um, in terms of being cleared, do you think you really are cleared, or does Google remember forever? And, and, and is it something that there are still people that question your motivations? Like, has it cost you opportunities since? Or, or, or has the world kind of just said, okay, we're going to, we see what the real story is here, we're going to let it go? Well, I mean, there are always people who question my motivations. If you are a leader and you are, uh, you know, publicly visible, you can't be liked by everyone. However, I have to say that I fought it back. I wrote a book about it. As I said, I agreed to be uh, to tell this story in a documentary, and uh, and this is my fight. You know, I have been very clear with myself that I needed to put my reputation back on and actually uh, explain that. Um, Bad journalism can uh, really make us burn hundreds of thousands of ideas and uh, of of euros in that case uh, for research because you know of course if you lose your credibility you are out of the grant system I mean that's the way mm-hmm. it works. Oh, tell so, me about it. <laughs> yes, exactly. So <laughs> yeah, no, I, and and but let's go back a little bit on that. You know, you the judge said that most of the information against you was fabricated. I mean, it's exoneration left and right. And you even filed defamation against the the, the journal uh, or the uh, magazine. Uh, Did that play out favorably for you? I sued the the journalist from a penal point of view, right, for defamation. The, The... Trial location or the the competency of this case was moved from Rome, where it stayed one year, to L'Aquila, one year, Avezzano, one year, Velletri, one year. So finally, a judge picked up my defamation uh, act against the journalist four years after the magazine had been published and two years after I had been cleared, okay? Mm -hmm. The judge said that the information that was provided from the journalist, which was a cut and paste from the documents which were released by the uh, investigative body, were of public interest, even if I had been cleared in the meantime. So, although I had been cleared, the journalist was not found guilty of defamation. However, there is a civil 
defamation um, uh, case, in, 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 which is still ongoing. Hmm. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because Italian justice, this is what it does. Okay, so it's six, seven years since, like six years since yeah. it happened. Yes. And uh, that has also gone from one court to another court. And now it's on its third court. So they're moving it around. But I am hopeful that um, I will at least be able to sit in front of a judge and explain what this has meant for me and for my family. Um and for my profession. Yeah, it's it's really hard to um, to hear the story and understand how it derails the, the trajectory of what was a, a, an inspired career for the public good and being a public servant. In so many ways, I can relate to your story. You know, my, my suit got thrown out. They said it was the, the reporter's uh, First Amendment. You know, no problem. It's reporter's privilege to do this, even though it was, in in my opinion, a malicious and false campaign. And it was one of those things. But to have that, at least a decision that you can post and say, look, if someone says something about it, you can say, look, they found me, you know, that right. this wasn't true. And and that's the big deal. And um, But, you know, so the biggest thing, in recovering from this, as has been explained to me, is you have to make a decision. Do you disappear and say it was a good career and go do something else completely off the public grid? Or you immerse yourself in the public grid, in the public good, you do more outreach and more visible work and overcome that and retell the story. And so what's your plan going forward? Well, my plan going forward was that I moved to Florida and that I was going to start a new professional challenge, which is the One Health Center, and that I was going to use all the knowledge that I had gathered as a virologist, as a member of parliament, and as a fake news victim to drive my research. And that is what I'm doing. Um, Certainly, these things cut your life in two. So it's like an ax going down, and there's a before, uh, l'espresso for, for me and there's an after and you have to uh, put yourself together and rebuild your life and actually I have I have so I'm talking to you about it now but I I have virtually stopped talking about this event because if you continue talking about it I mean I have enough evidence out there that if people are interested, they can look it up. I do intervene when there are like, um, let's say, uh, events on science and justice. So I will step out and I will tell my story. But I want this horrible story to be just one small part of my life. And what I'm trying to do is to try and put it in a position where I will look at it and say, oh yeah, that happened to me, but then it's gone. And that's, you have to, you have to, you know, cool down, like cool down. It has to reduce the amount of energy it releases because until it's hot, you can't put it away. Yeah. That's the problem. That's, uh, and and I really very much appreciate you sharing your story here. Um, I think more and more we see examples of where scientists are coming under fire for doing what they do and then using the press to 
almost um, maliciously misinterpret it because it's a story that they want to tell. And um, I, I know in the last last week, I've had phone calls from two different scientists who are under intense fire for simply participating in social media and sharing their science and wondering, what do I do now? I mean, they are in crisis mode because their reputations are being destroyed. And it's something that still is happening and something I really wanted your story to be uh, out there as part of the podcast series. But more importantly, I'm excited about talking to you about the coronavirus. So um, in the second half of the podcast today, we'll speak with Dr. Kapu about the um, coronavirus and uh, what we know about it as of today, which is really February 4th. I never, uh, 2020, I never timestamped this thing, but we will do it today because of the timeliness of the information. So and then whatever I say could be used against me tomorrow, <laughs> so we better timestamp it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, so this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. It is good to be back as the host of the Talking Biotech Podcast. At times, we find ourselves in challenging positions where we're faced with a threat, maybe an unwanted mandate or imposed change that's counter to our desires. Sometimes the burdens we don't choose run counter to our fundamental core principles. It's at these times we have to make critical decisions. Do we accept a change? Do what we're told, fold up shop and quit? or find some way around it, dial it up, find a new level, and turn that negative into a positive. I had to do this back in 2015 when I found myself on the front page of the Sunday New York Times. It was a pathetic hit piece that was designed by anti-biotech NGOs to end my career. Almost did. The article said I was in deep collusion with agricultural companies and traded grants for lobbying. Only there were no grants and there was no lobbying. (laughs) It's illegal. Uh, The article also had a profound effect on my life, and I lost tremendous opportunities, most of which were unpaid. They were volunteer work to help others that I lost because of the article. I had to step back and think about what I needed to be. It was a time to quit or a time to dial it up. I seriously asked, where do I want to be in five years? What do I really stand for? What would Norman Borlaug do? Now, I'm not interested in rehashing the hassles of the last five years. I certainly can say that the most recent takedown of my outreach and public education efforts have been the most damaging and the most concerning. They've rattled my faith in academic freedom, and it's shown me that my role as a land-grant university scientist doesn't square with my passions to communicate science to the public. So I'm not going to quit either role. I'm going to use my position as a university professor to drive exciting research, train students and postdocs, and give students a first-rate experience in the classroom. When I leave work, we'll meet here on the podcast and on other stuff, but we're going to dial it up. There will be new websites, videos, children's books, and other media coming down the line. There's a Talking Biotech Facebook page. We'll discuss every episode afterwards. I've been approached about bringing on advertisers, and it seemed great because I could hire producers, website experts, search engine optimization, transcripts, all those kinds of good things. But does corporate sponsorship erode the trust we build? Unfortunately, it makes an easy point for critics to, well, criticize what we do and poison our audience with false associations. So let's try Patreon. It's not perfect, but it's good. 
and your support will allow the purchase of equipment, server space, hiring expert producers, and all of the other elements that will allow this podcast to reach more people with a higher quality presentation and better content. So put a little wind in the sails of the pirate ship. Every cent raised will be spent specifically on science outreach activities. So please consider supporting the podcast, even a buck or two a month. I'm grateful for the incredibly loyal listenership, all of your kind words, and your wonderful reviews. I'm excited to take this podcast into its sixth year. And when confronted with the question of to stop and shut down or dial it up, you know the answer. Thank you, and back to the podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Ilaria Kapua. She's the director of the One Health Center of Excellence here at the University of Florida. She is a virologist and veterinarian, uh, but an expert in, uh, in, AB, in well, animal viruses in general, which is really the start of where the coronavirus that's currently um, of issue, this 2019 NCOV virus, um, is that how they pronounce it? NCOV or NCOV? We'll get into that, and yeah. I'll explain to you why this is such a problem. Okay, so she's she gave a talk the other day on campus that was phenomenal, and I was so grateful to be able to see, because as a science communicator, I wanted to be able to give the accurate information, and likely that's why it's so important for us to do it as part of the podcast today. So let's talk about the coronavirus. You know, where did this originate, and, and what is the, the what's the basis of, of this thing? So the first one of these that you might recall is SARS. SARS happened in 2003. It happened in Hong Kong. Please keep this in mind. Um, And it infected uh, about 9,000 people and um, killed 800 in various parts of the world. Um, It spread uh, not significantly, but it spread uh, to the to the rest of the world through mainly through air travel, um, that virus is now believed to be extinct. Um, the second coronavirus, which knocked on uh, our human health door, coming from animals, um, is the MERS coronavirus, which is Middle Eastern uh, respiratory coronavirus. Uh, this virus came from incredibly from camels and through camels it infected humans. The common progenitor of both of these viruses and actually even of the new uh, coronavirus uh, are bats. So these bats, of which there are over a thousand species, harbor these coronaviruses um, and they are probably completely asymptomatic in the coronavirus, in, in the bat um, ecology and, and you know, um, population dynamics. But some of them have the capacity to jump to another species. And so what happens when you have the disruption of the environment and you bring animals that are in the middle of the forest, like bats, to a live, to a live animal market, these bats, first of all, they're going to be really stressed. And if they're stressed, they're going to reactivate the viruses. And this virus is going to spread to other animals in the market. And either directly from the bat to the person or from the bat to another animal, another terrestrial animal uh, to the person. But basically, we had an event of 
uh, animal-to-human transmission. These events are very rare, very rare. The first cluster, uh, okay, the first patient and uh, let's say the first related cluster, generally speaking, are, do, are not very rapid in expanding because the virus needs to learn how to jump effic efficiently from a person to a person, right? Because he comes from bats, the virus, not from people. Mm -hmm. So he needs to learn and it takes a while. But once it's learned, it's learned. And so I would um, like to make a point relating back to the data, the sequence sharing um, issue that I raised so many years ago. Uh, you, what I am seeing with great joy is seeing that the international organizations are uh, promoting sharing, but the laboratories worldwide are now trying to rate, be the first ones to deposit in GenBank. And so there are now, I think, over 40 sequences coming from all over the world. They can be compared. And, and this just shows you how my, uh, let's say, my idea and my vision of 2006 had to be launched then so that we would now have the infrastructure and the platforms to react much faster. And so I am, I am very proud that, you know, this, um, so our thinking triggered a major change in how epidemic diseases are managed because now everybody's sharing. Why do they call it the 2019 NCoV virus or NCoV? <laughs> okay, because there is uh, a gigantic uh, economic issue linked to what name you give a virus. Because if this virus was to be called Wuhan, Wuhan would be stigmatized forever and nobody would ever go there. And so, um, however, you have to identify it in some way and you just can't call it coronavirus because you mix it up with the other ones. And so you need to find a, a name that will satisfy the country and that though properly identifies the virus. And so they, uh, there are teams of people that are discussing how to call this. Could you tell me a little bit more about the bats? So how does it get from a bat to, a, and you say through markets, this kind of thing, and, and in your talk the other day, you mentioned it you know, very clearly, are, you know, their people are eating bats and mm. butchering bats. You can buy a bat on the stick mm. on the street in Wuhan. Mm. I mean, that's, is that really what we're looking at? We're looking at um, a, a completely different alimentary culture. And in, in China, they eat virtually everything that moves, yeah. I think. I think mm -hmm. this is what they say. And so, yes, there are bats that are brought live to the markets because some of them, want, some consumers like to butcher them at home. And, sure. this, is, and this is how it happens. Sure. It's just, uh, you know, a different way of providing for your own food. Yeah, I think that there's sometimes the perception that someone gets bit by a bat or no, something no, like, like no, rabies. No. But, but this is people willingly, you know, just 
communing with nature and but eating nature, and there it is. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned this first person that the virus has to learn how to move on. So you have this person has an infection, a latent infection, perhaps maybe some symptoms, but then the virus that does it mutate, or what happens that it allows it to uh, become communicable between adapt. people? Adapt. Let's it say adapts. adapt, which of, of course involves some mutations, but. I would not use the word mutation because mutation is nearly always associated with something bad. Yeah. Instead, it's an ad- adaptation. Yeah. You know, when you put on a new pair of shoes, <laughs> you have to adapt. So viruses have receptors and cells have receptors and the, the virus has a size uh, seven and a half and it's trying to get into a uh, uh, shoe that's size seven. I see. So, you so, you're, you're, so you're kind of waiting for the glass slipper. Of that. Yes. And that's, yes. You, know, you could call it that in your next book. Yes. Yeah. Glass slipper. <laughs> so, so this person has the glass slipper event with their, uh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, the glass slipper event that this, um, uh, that this, this first person in Wuhan who got this from a bat now becomes communicable with others around him, around him or her. And, and so what, um, I guess the big question about this particular virus is, can you compare its transmissibility and its mortality, or is that how they say it in, the, in epidemiology, uh, relative to some of the other coronaviruses? How transmissible is this one? Okay, so, so like from the first, uh, let's say, circle of spread inside the family, the virus fortifies itself, not in terms of virulence, but in terms of transmissibility. And then you have like a second epidemic wave, which infects, let's say, um, five people as much. And then it becomes sort of exponential with the, it depends, the R0, what what that value is. Um, But you asked me about so the more the virus circulates in people, the more transmissible it becomes because it, it learns to walk in those shoes. With reference to the lethality, what we can say is that actually it seems that in China there are many more people infected than what uh, they had initially believed. And this is probably linked to the fact that Uh, many people out of the infected province moved out uh, to go uh, and visit their family for the Lunar New Year festivities. And so the quarantine measures were put in place uh, probably a bit too late. The the cities were put under lockdown a bit too late. Um, So if you think about it, the number of deaths are around 300, I think that's the last number I can't remember. But if the number, the denominator, so the number of infected people is not 1,000, 2,000, or 12,000, but is 500,000, obviously the mortality is virtually non-negligible. So it is a situation which is in evolution because the virus is, it's its first big epidemic wave. It has now been found in several uh, places in China. Um, And I also would like to say that, you know, there's a lot of nasty speculation about whether China hid it, they didn't hide it. Okay, so I would like to ask the people who are listening, would you launch an international alarm if you had five Chinese people in, in the ch- five Chinese citizens 
coming to a, a practice and saying, look, we all have this really bad cold and grandpa is coughing really bad. No, they don't have a health service there. You know, probably they said you have the flu, go back home. Yeah. Right. And they don't have the diagnostics. You understand There's, there wasn't a molecular test to see w- what these people had. So it could very well be that the time that was lost was lost because they had to understand what was happening. That's right. You don't know it's an unusual thing. You just know people are sick. Exactly. And it could be the flu, could be a cold. You know, how many times do you see 20 people you've been associated with hacking and coughing because their kids all go to the same daycare, you know, and they're Exactly. They're, you're moving through that petri dish. But uh, so so in thinking about this this is what enables this thing to take off in the beginning. And you mentioned moving around China and certainly circulating around the world. But when I look at the maps, there hasn't been any reported yet in Africa. Yet you mentioned the other day that there certainly is a lot of air traffic between Africa and China. And is there a potential? And I think this you mentioned the folks from the WHO who said that this will become a tremendous burden on the poorest nations of the world. And can you expound on that a touch? Yeah, so Dr. Tedros, who is the director of the WHO, uh, uh, emphasized that developed countries uh, are not going to be the big problem in terms of health. Uh, In terms of health, the most fragile countries are the ones that are going to pay the biggest burden. And um, actually, I can really see this because... How are we going to empower um, the whole of Africa to be able to diagnose this so that we at least we know what's happening? I mean, uh, this could, could, could really be, and, and let's not forget that in Africa there are many underlying conditions that could really raise the, the burden on, on the health systems that are fragile, as we said, but also the burden in terms of lives. And, uh, and so actually um, we are uh, keeping an eye on Africa and I am very well connected with a series of groups that are a- active in Africa to try and help them out because um, Africa is a very big place. It's a very complicated place. And, um, yeah, and is very fragile. And in terms of uh, in the industrialized world, we're over here and it's kind of a lot of surveillance, maybe even a little paranoia about this. But what was your advice to people who, you know, things you can't control, things you can control. And you mentioned the importance of the influenza vaccine at this point. So why is that important? Well, for, for three reasons. The first one is that if you get vaccinated, you'll have a lower probability of contracting influenza. Uh, And therefore, if the influenza that you would have contracted was particularly severe, you would have been hospitalized. And therefore, we the last thing we want is that hospitals are uh, full of people that have influenza, right? That's the first reason. The second reason is that um, influenza can be a confounding factor in general because when you do, I mean, there's no way to clinically. So if we do large epidemiological studies and we say, have you had a respiratory form and you've had the flu, we say, you know, you write yes, but you don't know which one it's been. And then, of course, because 
if you get if you are exposed to coronavirus and you are have an underlying influenza infection or you get a super infection with influenza two viruses are much worse than one virus and so you're actually doing your good and you're doing public good by vaccinating yourself for influenza and i guess um you know the other one is really dispelling a lot of the myths we see online and that's really been a cesspool i don't know if you've seen this but you know you look online and see what's going on and um you know uh, people are recommending apple cider vinegar and, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, to treat influenza and to protect from the coronavirus, you know, so, uh, um, uh, aromatherapy, you know, I mean, this is where, and, and these things are going everywhere right now. But a lot of times people at these, in the same groups tend to be promoting rhetoric that really takes away the trust that we have as a, as a, as a nation in the regulatory system and in the systems that are there to protect us. And what's your advice around that in terms of, you know, our, our trust in the system to do the right thing? So trust in the system is the most precious asset we have. Because if you have to react to an emergency, you have to do what you're told. Actually, I wanted to make a special point about Florida. I think that because Floridians are so used to emergencies because of the hurricanes and because of the extreme weather events, um, Floridians are very well prepared to manage uh, the epidemic spread of this virus because you guys are not going to get caught in, oh my God, I don't have any stocks left, right? right? Because you know this and, and the system... I was so impressed with the evacuation with Hurricane Irma. It was my first, uh, it was my first hurricane here. Wow. Evacuated 5 million people. I mean, congratulations. So, the, okay, so as I said, the, the most important, and sorry, and this was possible because Floridians trust the organization. And they say that if these are the guidelines, this is what you do, right? Right. Um, well, then there's about 20% of the population that does not trust the system, but they're hunkered down in the Patriot bunker and, and sealed in for the next year. So they're not going to spread it either. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I just yeah. threw that out there. Just right. you know, yeah. Uh, well, but, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But let's say that, no, we were talking about trust in institutions. And, um, yeah, because there's no space for making mistakes, right? right? There's right. no space. There's, if you make a mistake, it could be a gigantic mistake. And actually, I am very concentrated on giving correct information, and so I don't read what's out there on the web because I don't have time. Yeah. I don't have time. But certainly, and this is another one of the lines of research of my group, uh, we, we will have to incorporate um, of course, social media, but also fake news and what comes out of media outlets into the epidemiology of infectious diseases. Yeah. Because people are going to follow directions that are given by non-experts. And so where do people find good information? And that, that's, that was so important. And the resources you gave the other day are phenomenal. So where would you direct people to go? 
Well, I mean, the WHO, I mean, you have to go to the CDC, the WHO, ECDC, European Center for Disease Control, Institute Pasteur, I mean, the um, Health and Human Service, I mean, the websites that are run by uh, the, the institutional system. Yeah. And I'll post some of those. Another really good one was out of Johns Hopkins, where they actually have an epidemiology map oh, yeah. that shows where the breakouts are occurring. It's really been valuable, and it's been good for me to so learn more about this. So is this Joe Brownstein's? I don't know, yeah. Well, if it is, <laughs> he started doing that on the back of my sequence sharing. It could be him. If you look it up, I, I'll I wanted check it to out. look at it. it could yeah, be I'll him. check it out. Yeah. So it could be, could be very He good. developed that health map. There is this called this thing called health map uh-huh. after the sequence sharing. Oh, there you go. Yeah, comes goes full circle. So, kind of the, the next to last question then is, how nervous are you about this, either personally or how you look at this in terms of the health of other people around the world? I am not nervous at all for developed countries. I am very concerned for developing countries, and I am very concerned that um, this the spread of this infection may. Um, increase the welfare divide that there is between developed nations and low-income countries and so that's what I'm really worried because then if if people aren't happy that's when they start complaining and that's when you start getting protests and so um, that is when tensions start so yes I am I am worried more for its geopolitical ramifications and its economic ramifications, which are going to be gigantic, gigantic, because of the air trade, because of fear, because of... But personally, um, I am not uh, concerned about it. If I get it, I, you know, I get it. And Life goes I, on. Yeah, I mean, uh, m- most, okay, most, if not all, Respiratory infections caused by coronaviruses in mammals, okay, actually even in birds, are from mild to very mild symptoms. So let's look, let's put this into perspective. Ah, very good. Right from the virologist, right? Well, yeah. I have a beautiful <laughs> table that they're putting together for me next door. Yeah. Very good. So, so now you recently have uh, published a book in Italian, mm-hmm. which will be out in English. So, what is that about, and when can we expect it here in the states? So, my new book is called Salute Circolare, uh, which means uh, circular health, and basically it's about uh, empowering the One Health Revolution. Um, by looking at the main problems we have now and basically it it goes back to the ancient Greek philosophy that believed that we are, our health is strictly interconnected with the health of the environment and of the health of what is around us. And so this book is really about how the One Health vision should be promoting the co-advancement of the health of humans, but also of animals, plants, and of the environment, because ultimately we are in charge. And there are certain things that have been done in the past which we cannot do anymore. Want an example? Can we continue to spray mosquitoes to control 
diseases and kill bees. Can we continue to do this? Because it's, it all fires back. If you do not approach health as a system, if you load too much on one side, you're going to pay the bill on the other side. We live in a closed system. This is what this book is about. And actually, going back to Wuhan, it explains how if you intervene on the environment violently and you devastate it, the equilibrium has to find its like another way of existing. And this is what happened with the coronavirus. Well, very good. And when when it comes out in English, can we can we have another sit down yes, and talk? Yes, <laughs> yes. So okay, I'm I'm working on the English translation. I hope I was hoping to hand it in by the end of February, but the coronavirus blew all my pro, all my you know projects. So let's say that it should be out after the summer. That's that's a. Um, I would say a reasonable deadline. Mm. And so if people want to uh, follow you online or maybe on Twitter, where can people find you? At Ilaria Capua. That's where I am. Yeah, and and I'll spell that for you. It's I-L-A-R-I-A-C-A-P-U-A. Yes. And she's active on Twitter. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm active. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. I really, um, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Always is a pleasure to sit down with one of my heroes. And I really appreciate <laughs> no, you thank very you. much. thank you. No, you are one of my heroes. And <laughs> here we are, heroes gang together, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much. And, and, and thank you, everybody, for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. It's great to be back. Um, this is really a passion of mine, sharing the science. And uh, it reminds me of how important this is for me. And I appreciate your listenership. Thank you very much for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay. And- ciao, ciao. The Talking Biotech Podcast presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Folta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.